0: So I have a question for you to think about, and feel free to turn to someone next to you and, and maybe answer this. I'll give you just a few seconds. When was the last time you thought about angels? When was the last time you thought about angels? Go, turn next to the person next to you and answer that, if you would. Alright, well, so I overheard some of those conversations and uh, we had a few people that yesterday, recently, some, it's been a while. Um, honestly, for me, it was this week because we're going to talk about angels. But other than that, really, I don't think a lot about angels. And that, that may not be a good thing, although we'll we'll get to that. I mean, generally speaking, in, in our day, angels are not on too many people's radar. Now, um, there have been seasons, of course, in life. I, I can remember, and I may or may not, once in a while, at some point way back, have watched Roma Downey and Touched by an Angel. Some of you appreciated that reference. Angels in the outfield, Chris, I'm with you on that one. Uh, when I was a student at Biola uh, University, Uh, We all had to take a lot of Bible classes. That's one of the unique things about Biola. And one of the elective Bible classes was Angelology, the study of angels. And uh, I had a roommate who took that class. And uh, so like a whole semester was really doing a deep dive into what the Bible say from Genesis to Revelation systematically about angels and demons and the spiritual realm. And so there are times and seasons, uh, and and even just in the Christian subculture, sometimes there's popular books or movies, and it gets us thinking um, about angels. But really, where we live here in America, and again, maybe it's just me, but we don't spend a lot of time thinking about angels generally. There's exceptions, of course. It was different in the first century. In the first century, the, the world of the people that had these letters like Hebrews written to them and whatnot. Um, For first century followers of God, there was a lot of speculation about angels. And the book of Hebrews, we just started a sermon series last week. We're in it today and for quite a while still. Um, The book of Hebrews is going to have a lot to say about angels. It's going to talk about angels appearing in human form. That'll be interesting. It's going to talk about how angels are ministering before the throne of God. We kind of know that. Maybe you you can think of like Isaiah 6, the vision Isaiah gets of God on the throne, and there's these angels before the throne, and similar picture comes in the book of Revelation. Um, In Hebrews, we're going to learn that angels serve and protect us, humans. We'll see some of that today uh, as well, Um, and even we're going to note briefly that in some way, the angels were involved, some angels were involved in, in revealing the law to Moses, kind of bringing the Mosaic law. So that's just the book of Hebrews. And then, of course, if we think about our Lord Jesus, right, at his birth, angels are involved with his mom and dad uh, and, and, and things like that. There's the angels that minister to Jesus after his 40 day fasting at the empty tomb. There's angels. And that's just to name a few incidents, not to mention throughout the rest of the Testaments. So on the one hand, angels are a big deal. Maybe we don't think a lot about angels in our day. So um, they are a big deal, um, but they're not the big deal. And really, that's uh, what we're going to find out uh, once again this morning. They are not as big of a deal as Jesus. And that's, that's our focus in our passage today. So we started this series, Jesus is Greater. We sang a song just a few moments ago called Something Greater, has come that that obviously is a connection to the book of hebrews but even jesus himself some of you will maybe have memory of these references in matthew 12 jesus himself in speaking about himself said that something greater than the temple has come something greater than jonah has come something greater than solomon has come and he was speaking of himself something greater has indeed come and so this book of Hebrews, which we started last week, the opening four verses helped us see seven specific ways that Jesus is greater simply for who he is and what he has done. For who he is and what he has done. And the seventh item, we looked at it just briefly, if you were here and you might recall, Hebrews 1.4, it says that Jesus has become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so, our focus today will be to look at how Jesus is greater than angels. He's superior to them. And because he is superior and greater than angels, the writer is going to warn us not to drift from and not to neglect this greater one, Jesus, and specifically his salvation. Because Jesus is greater than angels, we're going to be warned not to drift from and neglect Jesus and his salvation. I see some of you returned with your Hebrews scripture journals, and it looks like maybe uh, there's one more. So we bought a few more of those since those seemed to be a hot ticket item last week. So if, if you want one, I, you can go. Everyone will watch you go get that final journal. <laughs> All right, there we go. And, uh, so the whole idea of that, and if I need to buy a few more, I will, but, uh, Again, it's just it's just the ESV translation of Hebrews. On one side, it's got the text, and then on the other side are lines for you to take notes. You can, throughout the week, read ahead, write down questions. And again, we are going to be in this letter, this book, this sermonic letter, as I called it last week, of Hebrews uh, for a while. We'll take some time uh, around Christmas, of course, to focus on the incarnation, uh, but bring those, and um, again, hopefully... You can jot some notes. Uh, we've had you stand and sit a bunch, but I'm going to invite you to stand one more time as I read our passage this morning. So if you're able, please stand. And if you're not, it's okay too. I'm going to read, though, Hebrews one one. i I'm going to start where we were last week, and I want to read the whole section through chapter 1 into chapter 2, verse 4, And so you can follow along as I read. I want us to get the whole flow of thought here. and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes the, his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So, the first thing this morning we're going to see, and you heard a whole string of references there related to the fact that Jesus is greater than. Angels, and the author makes this point uh, in these verses uh, by stringing together a bunch of Old Testament references. In fact, he quotes seven different Old Testament passages in chapter one, verses five to fourteen. If you kind of want to look at those seven, they're they're organized into three groups of two. Okay, that kind of all go together. The first six are organized into three groups of two, and then there's one final seventh reference, kind of the climactic one there at the end from Psalm 110. You should note as well, if you're the type that is going to flip back and forth, and the one thing I'm a little bummed at as I digress for a moment into these journals, uh, they don't give you the footnotes. They want it just to be the text of Scripture, which is good, but if you have a a Bible like this, you may have footnotes, and those uh, help you see where the author was quoting seven different times from, which Psalm and Second and Samuel and, and a few other places and whatnot. So you don't get those references uh, in, in that journal. But if you were to look up those references uh, in your Bible, and your Old Testament, they would sound a bit different. That's because, and I mentioned this briefly last week, the writer to the Hebrews, when he quotes the Old Testament the Hebrew Scriptures, he's actually quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It's known as the Septuagint or the LXX. Uh, So that's one of the unique things about the writer of the Hebrews. His quotes come from uh, the the Septuagint, the Greek translation. So there's a bit of a difference. If you read the Hebrew Scriptures for some of these references, and if you had access to a Septuagint, they sound a little different. And and so, again, just kind of know that. Uh, if you do spend some time going back and flipping around and looking these up. These are Greek translations of the Hebrew, seven different ones, to make his point. And and really, he's employing a method that we should learn. He he starts in verses 1 to 4 telling us that Jesus is greater, and he is. But then he says, look, I want you to see, in fact, why Jesus is greater. And and as it relates to angels, here you go, verse, 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 seven different times, and he's going to do this all throughout this book related to all the other topics, not only about Jesus being greater, but as he employs kind of his foundation for why he is saying what he is saying, okay? So for our time this morning, though, and if you're taking notes, uh, I want this to be helpful, I'm gonna divide up those seven quotes into three main points, okay? So we're thinking right now that Jesus is greater than the angels. This is chapter one, verses five to 14. Jesus is greater than the angels. And so three sub-points kind of to organize the message. And the first is this. Jesus has a better name than the angels. Jesus has a better name than the angels. So verses 4 and 5, then, of chapter 1. Again, speaking of the Son, speaking of Jesus, it says in verse 4, "...having become as much superior or greater to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And that name at this point is Son, the Son of God. It's not Jesus. Uh, that's not a name he inherited. That's a name that was given to him. Of course, the angels told uh, his parents on earth to name him that. But but here, the reference to the name he has inherited refers to Son. And that was played out, or spelled out rather, in the opening verses, uh, chapter 1 verse 2, in these last days, God spoke to us by his son, okay, the one that he appointed as the heir of all things. So he says now in verse 4, this name is more excellent to be the son of God, is more excellent than to be an angel. And then his first reference comes from Psalm 2.7. Verse 5, he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, quoting Psalm 2.7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, now the second Old Testament quote, uh, the first pair, Second Samuel 7, verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So Jesus has a better name than the angels, and he has been given the name Son of God. And as I said, we saw that. In verses 2 and 3, to be the son means that he is the heir. He's the one that is the heir of the world, and he shares in the glory of his father. And there's no angel that has that status of being son. Now, we hear words like begotten, the only begotten of the father. And it really sounds to us as if there may have been a time when Jesus wasn't the son, but then all of a sudden there came a time when he was begotten and then became the Son of God. But uh, the Scriptures clearly teach that that idea is not true. John 1, verses 1 and 2 spell out clearly that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word will be identified as none other than Jesus there in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, so the Word, the second person of the triune God, has always existed. Okay? there has always been one God eternally existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And at a point in history some 2,000 years ago, God the Son came to earth, the incarnation, 83 days till Christmas, and he took on flesh and became the God-man. Okay? But God the Son has always existed. So here in this passage, when it says uh, by quoting these these two uh, references, Psalm two, "You are my son; today I have begotten you," and then Second Samuel, "I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." Uh, they they refer rather to what took place at the resurrection. So Romans chapter one verse four, the Apostle Paul says there, speaking of Jesus, that he was declared to be the Son of God, hear that word, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So there's something unique. He was always the Son. He came into this world, but at his resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, Romans one four. or we could think at that point begotten. But again, that sounds a little weird. To our ears, okay, well, the Roman world, the world in which this this was written, they understood this a little better than we tend to. Let me quote from one writer uh, speaking of this idea: when sons came of age, they were formally bestowed with the family name, even though in one sense they always had the name. so this writer here that I'm quoting says. My own son, John, has my name and is my son, and there's nothing that can change that. But if we were living in the Roman world, when John came of age, he would be bestowed with and credited with the family name in a formal way. He would become my son. And this is the best way to understand Jesus' sonship status. He came of age. He was begotten. He was declared to be the son at his resurrection so psalm 2 can say today namely on the of the day of his resurrection jesus was appointed as the son and no angel ever had this status as the heir of the universe the very son of god so that hopefully helps us think a little bit more about what this begotten language means the writer to the hebrews did not believe that at some point the son became okay there are other Groups that teach that, and those ideas have been condemned as heretical. uh, And the Christian orthodoxy has always said that the the eternal sonship has been the son has eternally been the son, even with this begotten language. And so, a little bit of understanding culture and history helps us grab that. So, again, the first thing: why Jesus is greater than angels is because he has a better name than angels. He's he's the son. He's the son. No angel has that right of of sonship. Number two, not only does Jesus have a better name than angels, but number two, he he has a better position and ministry than the angels. Jesus has a better position and ministry than the angels. And so we see this now here in verse 6. And what we see in verse 6 is that he receives worship, Okay, that, that position to receive worship. And then verse 7, we're going to see that as this position of receiving worship, he is none other than God, and as God, he, in fact, sustains all things. So let's read, again, this next pair of Old Testament quotes. Verse 6, again, when he, speaking of God the Father, brings the firstborn, there's that language of the, the one who had the right of inheritance, okay, firstborn, sonship language, When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, so the writer, catch this, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, when God the Father brings the firstborn, who's the Son, Son of God, Jesus, into the world, God says, God the Father says, and now he quotes Psalm 97, verse 7, let all God's angels worship him. God the Father says, when the Son is bestowed with that title, let all God's angels, His angels, worship Him. Staggering to just like hear that. Sometimes you hear people say that the Bible doesn't really teach that Jesus is God. That's a Christian idea. The Bible teaches over and over and over again that Jesus is God. And one of the ways is right here, because the Son receives worship. The Bible makes it clear that the only one to receive worship is God, And we could string a bunch of Old Testament references, New Testament references that make that point. Let me read one from the New Testament, Revelation 19, 9 and 10. Speaking of an angel, it says there, and the angel said to me, that's John, who writes Revelation, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet. So John's saying, I fell down at this angel's feet to worship him, which by the way, every time angels appear to people in the Bible, the people are fearfully worshipful. Like, Because angels are a big deal. They're not cute little chubby cherubs like we sometimes think of with art and, and whatnot. They were terrifying, but magnificent and glorious. And so John falls down to worship, verse 10, John uh, Revelation nineteen ten. I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. This is an angel speaking. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, you other Christians, your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So this angel in Revelation 19 would not receive any worship. So the son as as this role of being the Son and of being God receives worship. But then verse 7, the next quote. Of the angels, He, referring to God, the Father, says, and now Psalm 104, verse 4 is quoted, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. So the angels, they they have an important role. Uh, They they are ministers. We'll see that uh, in a little bit again. They they serve, and they are magnificent. It's very poetic, right? Winds and fire. Um, Probably they don't look like Roma Downey. I mentioned Psalm 104 last week. I don't know if you had a chance to read it. It's just a glorious psalm that speaks of... God as creator, sustainer of, of all things. And here again, we have Jesus being very much attributed as God in that way. So angels, they, they worship the Son. Angels are His servants, even though they are splendid and glorious. So Jesus has a better position and ministry than angels, although they have a great position in ministry too. He is worshipped by angels, they serve him, so he is greater than angels. And then number three, the third point we see in these final three now Old Testament quotes, Jesus rules everything, including angels. Jesus rules everything, including angels. Hebrews 1 verse 8, again, continuing his his point by by these references. But of the Son, so now again, the writer is saying, God the Father, speaking of the Son, says, and now he quotes Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of our rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, staggering. The writer is telling us that God the Father says of the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father calling God the Son, Son, uh, God, right there in our Bibles. And there's some allusion to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and verse 3. Isaiah, rather, would eventually be probably pulling from this psalm But in Isaiah 61, Isaiah uses the same ideas of anointing that that apply to the promised messianic one. Jesus rules all, including the angels. His throne, that is forever, means he rules everything. And then we have another quote. Verse 10, quoting Psalm 102, verses 25 and 27. This is our sixth Old Testament quote. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. At the end of this letter, the writer in chapter 13, verse 8, is going to say it explicitly. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And then finally, verses 13 and 14, the seventh Old Testament quote, and again, the climactic one from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a big deal in Hebrews. We will see it referenced quite a bit. But here it is, verse 13. And to which of the angels, again, he's asking it rhetorically, to which of the angels has God ever said, quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for you. There's been no angel ever that God has said to the angel, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That that position, it's not a secondary position, right? It's not like on the ship at Star Trek, you know, the captain and then number one is like in a secondary position, okay? It's not like, like that at all. To be at the right hand of the throne is to be equal with the authority of the Father. And the Son was given this position to be at the Father's right hand. And then that that reference, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. You might remember a few weeks ago, we had a guest speaker, Daniel Flores. He preached out of 1 Corinthians 15, where this passage comes up. And I don't know if you remember, he Put his foot up like this, and talked about how the reference here. And it's good that the younger kids are up the road. I can be a bit more direct. Uh, It's a reference to a ruler putting his foot on the neck of someone he has conquered. And and if we just think about how much that would hurt and what that could do, I mean, it it is to say that this one has conquered. And and if your enemy is your footstool and your hand is or your foot is at their at their neck, they have no. No chance. No angel has ever been invited to that position, but it's been given to the Son, the Son. Jesus himself would speak of these verses in Matthew twenty-two, um, trying to help people that were in his within their within his earshot understand that this was spoken of him. That when David said these things in Psalm one ten, that they we not referring to David's literal kids, at least not ultimately, but ultimately to the promised Messiah. And so again, Psalm 110 is an important psalm quoted in the New Testament all over the place. Finally, verse 14, speaking again now of angels, are they, angels, not all ministering spirits? They are, we saw that in verse seven. They've been sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation again rhetorical that's that's angel's role the word angel by the way means messenger that 's one of the main things angels do they they have messages from God, and even that 's astounding God, the Father loves us and he he has sent his son and and the Son came and lived the life we can't live and died the death we deserve to die. We're going to see that salvation in a moment. He's ascended now. The Son prays for us. At the right hand of the Father, the Son will come back. The Spirit has been given into our lives to help us. But, but as if that weren't enough and that would be enough, angels still, it says right here, are ministering spirits. They are sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation. If you're a Christian today, if you've inherited salvation Again, key words, you don't earn it. It's been given to you by grace alone. You've, you've inherited it from, from God. God uses angels to direct us and protect us and do things, things we don't even know, things we maybe don't even realize. So all of that, the whole chapter one is telling us that Jesus rules everything, including angels. He's been given a name that is greater. He's got a better role. He is greater than angels. But before we wrap up, we need to see chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 2, verse 1 has that word, therefore. And that therefore is therefore a reason, right? All this great truth, seven quotes from the Old Testament, building this point that that Jesus is greater than angels. There's there's a point to it. And so he says, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, therefore, because of all that, we must... Pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. If you've been out in a boat, uh, you you may know, especially if you've been out on the ocean, where it can be windier, or a bay, but even Lake Sonoma can be pretty windy at times. Uh, if you if you stop your engine or motor and you you just you know, sit there, you don't stay in one spot. You, you drift, you move based on the wind and based on what's happening. Unless, of course, you anchor, and then you stay in one place. Uh, we will drift. And the, the message throughout the scriptures, explicit here, but it's all throughout, is that we never drift toward God. <laughs> I wish we did. We never drift into holiness. I wish we did. The, the truth is, no, we, we drift away from. We drift away from if we aren't intentional, if there isn't effort we we, we will drift it 's a warning oh we 're saved by grace alone we 're going to see it we we 've already sung it we 've seen it the sun, grace, yes, grace, 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 no merit we don't do anything to earn but but the Christian life is is a race. We looked at that months ago before summer hebrews twelve we we are running a race um even, even the great runners who run for a living, it takes effort. They have to continually stay in shape. And, and so here the analogy is that of drifting. We must pay much closer attention lest we drift away from it. For since the message, here, here's this idea of, of angels being the ones that were part of getting the, the Mosaic covenant. And we don't have time to go into it, but that's what he says. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, so, so again, even though the Scriptures, the Law, the Prophets, the Old Testament points to Jesus, they still are important, they're reliable, they have a place for teaching us who God is, what He's done, what what it means uh, to, to follow Him, and what it means to be God's people, all the while looking to Jesus. For since that message, which was declared by angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution simply put god's law there were requirements and if you obeyed there were rewards if you disobeyed there was there was wrath there was consequence that that was all part of it verse 3 how shall we escape escape what escape god's judgment god's wrath what what will come one day if we neglect such a great salvation now I believe the scriptures are clear. We, we cannot lose what is not ours to lose. Our, our salvation is from start to finish God's work in our life. We respond to him and Jesus makes it clear that he will lose none that the Father has given him. So to be saved is to be eternally saved. Uh, I don't think we, we can lose our salvation and I don't think that's what the writer here is saying But the Scriptures do say that we we need to take stock. We need to pay close attention. There are plenty of people who prayed a prayer as a little kid and think they have their ticket because they prayed a prayer, and they're they're not saved. We aren't saved because we prayed a prayer. We aren't saved because we went forward at a youth event or a conference or something like that. We're saved because God brings us from death to life. God regenerates us, and we believe and we respond, but it's, it's God's to-do, and we need to make sure that that moment I believed, whether it was a prayer, whether it was going forward, whether it was just over the course of life, and I realized I believe this, we need to make sure we're not drifting. We need to persevere, and that's the language of the Reformers. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. The saints, God's chosen, will persevere. They'll make it. And part of persevering is to make sure that they aren't drifting. And when they are drifting, we repent. I I quote it at least five or six times a year. The first thesis of Martin Luther's 95 thesis is is that the Christian life is all about repentance. Repentance. We should be repenting every day. To the Lord, because we are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. We 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 are prone to drift, so we we have to take stock that we not neglect this salvation. So, by the way, this is a call to perseverance, but it's a call to others too. Are you resting on some prayer? Are you resting on how you grew up, or or do you believe this great salvation? Verse three. It was declared, this message of salvation, at first by the Lord. So Jesus declared this message of salvation. It was attested to us, that's the writer, by those who heard. So the the apostles and the first generation of Christians. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders. Right, Jesus did signs and wonders, proving that he was, in fact, God's promised and anointed one. Other things happened as the church was born, signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We need to not drift from or neglect Jesus and his salvation. What does that look like? Just a couple of ideas for a moment. I think one of the main things is what is often called the ordinary means of grace. Do you want to not drift? Do you want to not neglect Jesus and this great salvation? Then then practice the ordinary means of grace, what Christians for 2,000 years have been practicing. Bible reading, what I like to call time alone with God. Not simply to check off some list you you did your readings for the day, but communing with him, God has spoken, we read, and then we pray in response to what god's word says that 's one of the ordinary means of grace, bible reading, prayer, what I just mentioned a moment ago, repenting, taking stock all throughout the day God if you know i just I said that horrible thing to my spouse or my kids or to my coworker or i I thought something that isn't pleasing. God, I, I confess that, I repented. that. That's, that's an ordinary means of grace, repenting to the Lord, repenting to one another. When you hurt someone, when you offend someone, say sorry. I'm sorry I did that. I'm a jerk sometimes, or however you want to put it. Repent and, and confess to one another. And if you are on the receiving end of that, offer forgiveness. Show that you have been forgiven by forgiving. By by having fellowship with one another. I don't mean donuts, right? Often in churches, fellowship time is donut time, right? No, no. True communion. That's what the word means. By by being in community with one another, by by knowing and being known. Knowing others and being known. Corporate worship like this, right? This is an ordinary means of grace where where the word of God is preached and we hear it and we we sit under it and we respond to it and we sing songs. Declaring who God is and worshiping him and our need for him and the like. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to take in a moment. Remembering that last supper and this this meal that Jesus instituted. Remembering that Jesus said he won't eat this meal again until he returns. And so we, we, we take it to remember what he did on the cross. We take it to remember that he's coming back. That's an ordinary means of grace. Things like that. Do you want to not drift from Jesus and his salvation? Do you want to not neglect him and his great salvation? Then then practice the ordinary means of grace of being a follower of Jesus. Because angels are are great and all of that, but they are not greater than Jesus. The writer makes it clear to us, no, no, Jesus is greater. And therefore, let's not drift from him. Let's, Let's not neglect him and his salvation. So let's take our our elements this morning. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes that he received from the Lord, from Jesus, from the Son, what he also has delivered to them, and now he's writing it again for them and for all of us, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this bread represents my body. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Eat eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. So our tradition is to take these elements on my instruction as a, as a family meal. So before we do that, let me just give us some space to talk to the Lord. In response to Hebrews 1 verses 5 through 2, 4. How, how are you doing today? Have you drifted from him and from his great salvation? Is there something you need to repent of and come back to? Let me just give you a few moments to talk to him and then we'll eat and drink together. So let's take together the side of this chalice that has the little wafer. And let's eat it together. Let's take the other side together. Let's drink together. Would you stand as I close us in prayer, please? So, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, in the name of the Son, who's greater than angels, we need and pray for your grace so that we won't drift from nor neglect you and your great salvation. Help us work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is you who's at work in us. Today, this week. May we see evidences of your grace in our life. And may Your place as the greater one, Jesus, be our delight, regardless of what we're dealing with and facing. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.